This is Africa Digest. Today's 1700 hours Central African time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. My name is Spumelele Zondi. Hello, welcome to the program. You can find us on a frequency 9625 kHz, that's on the 31-meter band if you are in Southern Africa. You can also find us on channelafrica.co.za if you want to stream us. I'm with Onel Nzinti, Amanda Machaka and Musibudi Makura. Let's up stories. Burundi government has denied UN accusations of committing crimes against humanity over the past 18 months. Activities and events underway in South Africa to highlight the importance of the tourism sector. Let's get your news first. Here's on LMTV. Thank you, Spoo. A Yemen government delegation has given Houthi rebels 24 hours to get to the Swiss city of Geneva for peace talks, failing which it will leave. The ultimatum comes after the Houthis refused to attend the talks unless the UN meets a list of conditions, including transporting wounded rebels to Oman for treatment. Yemen has been murdered in deadly conflict between Shia Houthi rebels and troops loyal to President Abed Rabo Mansour Hadi since 2014. The war has killed nearly 10,000 people with a particularly heavy toll on civilians caught up in airstrikes often blamed on the Saudi-led coalition. A military court in South Sudan has sentenced 10 soldiers to prison for raping foreign aid workers and murdering a local journalist. The crimes were committed during a rampage in the British-owned Terrain Hotel in the capital, Juba, in 2016. More than 70 people, including two UN peacekeepers, were killed in three days of heavy fighting between government and rebel forces. The soldiers were handed sentences ranging from seven years to life imprisonment, the BBC's Tommy Alidepo. On the 11th of July 2016, as rival soldiers clashed in Juba, some troops stormed the compound of the Terrain Hotel and gang-raped at least five aid workers and shot dead a local journalist. Today, the court ordered the government of South Sudan to pay compensation to each rape victim, to the family of the murdered journalist and to the owner of Terrain Hotel for the destruction and looting of the property. The trial has been seen as a major test of South Sudan's will to deal with impunity and abuses carried out by its armed forces. Russia has rejected accusations by a British government that Moscow ordered the nerve attack on a former Russian spy and his daughter in England in March. On, on, on Wednesday, the UK named two men, it said, were Russian military intelligence officers, accusing them of attempted murder of Sergei and Yulia Skripal, the BBC's Sarah Rainford. We've heard from the Kremlin itself, Vladimir Putin's spokesman. Now, he said that any suggestion that Russia was involved in the Salisbury poisoning is utterly untrue. He said that Russia had nothing to do with it. He repeated what Russia has been saying, of course, for many months. He also said that the suggestion that Russia's leadership or, he said, anyone, any official, high or low, had any link to those poisonings was unacceptable, as he put it. 
14 people have died of cholera, with almost 400 hospitalized in the past week in Nigeria's northeastern town of Maiduguri. Bono State Health Commissioner Haruna Mshelia says most of the suspected cases and deaths occurred in camps for displaced people in Maiduguri, while other victims were from neighboring districts on the outskirts of the state capital. Mshelia said the World Health Organization had recruited some 200 volunteers to conduct house-to-house house searches in suspected cases to ensure the transmission is interrupted on record time. At least 35 people were killed in September last year following a cholera outbreak in a sprawling camp for the displaced on the outskirts of Maiduguri, which also left hundreds hospitalized. Lastly, Botswana has ravaged reports that nearly 100 elephants were killed by poachers in recent weeks, saying the claims are unsubstantiated and sensationalizes media reports. According to news reports, the conservation group Elephant Without Borders reportedly discovered at least 87 deadly elephants near a wildlife sanctuary, many of which had been killed for their tasks. In a statement, the Botswana government says at no point in the last month or recently were 87 or 90 elephants killed in one incident in any place in Botswana. Channel African News, I am Onelin Sinzi. It is 1705 Central African Time on Africa Digest on Channel Africa as we continue to give you news from an African perspective. My name is Spomelele Zondi. Now, the United Nations has accused the Burundi government of committing crimes against humanity over the past 18 months. Jim Shimanyula reports that up to now, the Burundi government has not officially commented on the UN accusation. According to the United Nations Commission charged with documenting human rights abuses in the Central African nation of Burundi, the authorities in the capital Bujumbura committed crimes against humanity between 2017 and June this year. Speaking to journalists in Geneva, Switzerland, Francois Hampson, a member of the UN Commission of Inquiry on Burundi, expounded on the human rights violations that the Burundi government committed. Parlons de violations des droits de l'homme et de persistance de violations. Nous parlons des violations suivantes. When we talk about human rights violations and the persistence of violations, we are talking about the following violations, and you will see that they are serious violations: arbitrary executions, arbitrary arrests and detentions, acts of torture, and other cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment. Sexual violence. Violence sexuelle. Alors, ce sont des les mêmes violations et des disparitions forcées aussi. Les, ce sont des violations qu'on a constatées l'année dernière. Mais violations of civil liberties and violations of economic, social and cultural rights and enforced disappearances. En continuation de ces violations en 2017 et 2018. Hamson says, despite continued cries from the international community, human rights violations continue to be committed in Burundi. New practices such as the disposal of bodies or operating at night, Hampson says, tend to make the summary executions appear to have decreased compared 
to executions that occurred in 2015. The evolution is that now at night people come to remove those they are looking for and then we do not find the bodies anymore. That does not mean that they are not dead but we do not know where we can find these people but maybe they are dumped in mass graves or in rivers or maybe buried in prisons this is to say that the arbitrary executions are no longer hidden than they were before but that does not mean that they did not take place it may be appropriate to note that 10 years after the end of civil war in burundi the central african nation was plunged in a new crisis in 2015 when President Pierre Nkurunziza's ultimately successful bid for re-election to a third term sparked protests by opposition supporters. At the time, violence and serious violations of human rights were extensively reported and according to the United Nations Commission of Inquiry, the violations continue. Up to today, the Burundi government has refused, as it did previously, any dialogue with the UN's Commission of Inquiry. However, the UN Commission based its findings on approximately 900 statements of victims of human rights violations, witnesses and alleged perpetrators of such acts, including 400 statements collected last year. According to the statements, members of the Youth League of the Ruling Party, known locally as the Imbore Nakure, have allegedly played a pivotal role in the repression outside the legal framework and with near total impunity. With that in mind, Hampson posed the following question. Who are the main perpetrators of human rights violations? As usual, and like last year, it's mostly the police and the National Intelligence Services, SNR. It should be noted that this year there is less evidence of violations committed by army forces. On the other hand, there are many more acts committed by the Imbore Nakure, that the UN member of the Commission of Inquiry, François Hampson, is referring to is Kirundi word for those that see far. As I have said at the outset, Imbora Nakure is the youth wing of Burundi's ruling party, the National Council for the Defense of Democracy, known in short as CND. The UN Commission has called on the Burundian government to prosecute state agents and the Imbora Nakure involved in the violations and abuses of human rights. The Commission established that the Imbora Nakure acted with the approval and effective control of the Burundian authorities. The Commission is also concerned with with a shrinking democratic space as well as the population that has been thrown into poverty. Hampson says the political crisis that has hit Burundi since April 2015 has had a negative impact on the living conditions of the people of that country. It's important to pay tribute to the population when it would be so easy to find a scapegoat in the mess that they find themselves in. The economic situation is absolutely appalling. They've moved from needing, from having 1 million in need of humanitarian assistance to 3.6 million. That's a third of the population. And in that situation, they still haven't just latched onto a convenient scapegoat. I think 
hats off to them. I think it's real tribute need to be paid to them. That was Francois Hampson, member of the United Nations Commission of Inquiry on Burundi. The commission was created in September 2016 through a UN Human Rights Council resolution and will submit its latest report to the Human Rights Council in Geneva, Switzerland on the 17th of this month. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyola. Even though we don't have word from authorities in Burundi yet, we have spoken to the Burundian ambassador in South Africa, Azaya Ntirizoshira, who says the United Nations investigators are spreading lies about his country. He further says that they've never been to Burundi. The government of Burundi hereby rejects and has already rejected that report because uh, that, that commission of inquiry has been, let's say, set up with uh, a hidden agenda. You know, after the violent demonstrations and coup d'etat attempts failed in 2015 to remove the President Cruziza, the Western countries which were behind that, that failed coup initiated what we call a human rights war. When, through a, human, a, a commission of, of human inquiry, they, they, they issue reports of supposed allegedly human rights violations. And you know, those reports are are always the same. The 2018 report is a copy-paste of a 2017 report, except that this one goes really further in accusing President Nkurunziza of hatred tweets. And this is very, very serious. To accuse President Nkurunziza of of, uh, having a a very hated speech is very dangerous. How can can President Nkurunziza have a hated speech against Tutsi when, you know, his deputy president is a Tutsi. Tutsi people account for 40% of the government, 40% of national assembly, 50% of the, the Senate, the equivalent of NCOP here, 50% of the defense, defense and security, security forces. That's really impossible. In fact, by the way, President Hulusa is known as, as someone who is always preaching national reconciliation and cohesion. And here, I really defy Mr. Dudu Dien, the president of that, that commission, to quote only one sentence, only one sentence where he, where he shows that President Huruziza was using a hatred, a hatred speech. He will never get that because that's impossible from President Huruziza. Has the government of Burundi always been willing to cooperate with this commission? The government will never cooperate with this commission because we know, we, we know the agenda behind its setting up. Even if the, if the commission comes to Burundi, we know that it will issue this kind of report, this kind of fake news, and this kind, this kind of, of accusation. Really, I defy Mr. Dudu Dien to quote one sentence where President Nkurunziza is using a hatred speech. He will never get that. Would you say enough is being done, Ambassador, uh, to make sure that uh, human rights are being protected in the country? Yes, what we can say is really that the government is taking all the necessary measures to protect all the population and and the government is taking all the necessary measures so that real reconciliation is a, is a reality in Burundi. The, the government, even through its all its institutions, is working so that Burundi people are reconciled and work together for development of the country. That's Azaya Antiri Zoshira, who is the Burundian ambassador to South Africa, talking to Kumbero Munjarere. Remembering Mama Albertina Sisulu. We will say whatever we are expected to say by the people. And we are aligning ourselves with the struggle 
for the people. We are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the liberation of the oppressed people of this country. Channel Africa, leading the Women's Month conversations. It is 17.16 Central African Time, right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, as we continue to give you news from an African perspective. Now, activities and events to highlight the importance of the tourism sector continue in South Africa. This as the country marks a tourism month, an annual celebration held in September to focus on the importance of tourism to the economy of South Africa. It seeks to highlight the importance of tourism and its invaluable contribution to South Africa's economy, culminating on the United Nations World Tourism Organization Day on 27 September. Here's Ntlantla Mahlangu. The 2018 UNWTO theme for World Tourism Day is Tourism and the Digital Transformation, and it highlights the need for increased investment in digital technologies to create an environment for innovation and entrepreneurship in tourism. South Africa has adapted the UNWTO theme to inclusive and quality growth of the tourism sector through digital transformation to encourage travelers to explore the country while fostering an awareness of the socio-economic benefits of technological advances in creating opportunities to improve inclusiveness, community empowerment and the efficient resource management in the sector. I spoke to two restaurant owners in Johannesburg, Maboneng, to gather their thoughts on the significance of Tourism Month. Mpo Masilo is from Ravioli Restaurant, the biggest fine dining space in Maboneng. With tourism in September, definitely I'm hoping to get a lot of tourists in already. But if you actually take time to actually think about it, is that in Maboneng already we have backpackers, we have a lot of hotels around here. So we do get a, a substantial amount of tourists. Coming into Tourism Month, I feel that we're going to definitely add value uh, when it comes to tourism because we're not too far off. I'm sure if you're a tourist as well, wherever you go, even though you want to experience people's um, cultures and food, you don't want to get too far off. So we sort of like found a platform whereby we can bring the two elements together. Senzo Mngadi is from Lavrevo Restaurant. Mabone is quite a very uh, you know, interesting um, development, I think, in the landscape of Joburg and I think the entire of South Africa to what it represents. I mean, often you find people who are more keen to rather engage and, uh, you know, try something a bit more different. And sort of Maboning has kind of sort of lent itself in that way and sort of uh, been a, a nice fertile ground for young and inspiring entrepreneurs. You know, as a part of a growing culture, I think as well, uh, Maboning has lent itself to sort of invite a lot of tourists. So we constantly keep on having a lot of people just coming through here, just, just having a good experience of, uh, of the precinct. This year's Tourism Month activities are hosted in collaboration with the Eastern Cape Province, the birthplace of former President Nelson Mandela and Mama Albertina Sisulu. As the country celebrates their centenary and legacy, travelers are encouraged to visit the sites connected to these two great icons. All of South Africa's provinces have activities in place to celebrate Tourism Month. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Glantla Mashangu in Johannesburg. 
It is 17.19 Central African time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa as we continue to give you news from an African perspective. Remember that if you want to be a part of this conversation, you can find us on Twitter. We are on Channel Africa Numerical 1 on Twitter. That's Channel Africa 1. You can also send us your emails on info at channelafrica.co.za. That is info at channelafrica.co.za if you want to send us those emails. Now, the United Nations program on HIV and AIDS has welcomed the decision of the Supreme Court of India to annul a legislation of the Indian Penal Code, which criminalizes sexual relations between lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and intersex people. Gay men account for 18% of all new HIV infections worldwide. UNAIDS has urged countries to ensure respect of the human rights of all people regardless of their sexual orientation. For more on this, we're now joined on the line by UNAIDS Executive Director Michelle Sidibe. Hello and thank you very much for joining us. Hello. Hi. Um, now, Mr. Sidibe, this surely is good news for the LGBTI community. Yes, I am uh, really delighted uh, that finally a colonial era injustice has been reversed. LGBTI people in India can now lead normal lives without fear. We knew that uh, it was uh, very difficult for them. They were hiding themselves. They were going underground. Uh, In India, gay men are 10 times more infected than general population. This judgment will help bring down new infections amongst gay men and help increase access to HIV treatment, and which is very important. Why do you believe that it's going to bring down the rates of HIV among gay men? Because criminalization uh, uh, keeps people uh, in need of HIV prevention and treatment services outside the reach of life-saving intervention. They are not uh, getting uh, certainly uh, access to um, services like uh, they should and places uh, at risk uh, uh, it become more and more complicated because uh, those uh, sexual partners, uh, male and female and gay men and other men, are hiding themselves, like I said. They are out of reach of uh, life-saving intervention, and that will change completely uh, probably uh, their capacity to come out and to go for services without being criminalized. This is based on research, I would believe? Yes, it's based on research. Uh, We know uh, that uh, in most of the places where uh, uh, services are open, where people uh, can come uh, freely uh, without uh, being uh, um, stigmatized or criminalized and put uh, uh, in uh, jail and arrested, uh, people uh, use uh, health services. We are not talking about uh, other things. We are saying that uh, uh, they can come and they can use, and uh, the people don't push them, and they are not scared. What about cultural norms? Do they not play a role in that, apart from the decriminalization? Of course, uh, cultural norms play the role, but we know that uh, uh, when the the, the law is uh, creating enabling environment, when people are not uh, uh, scared to be arrested, that uh, helps them to come and help also uh, um, certainly society to reflect on uh, the fact that uh, restoring dignity of our people, giving them chance uh, to have access to life-saving services is normal. 
no one should be excluded uh, from uh, uh, his right to have access to medicine if this medicine can save his life. That is the point. Um, official statistics show that um, a gay men account for about 18% of all new HIV infections worldwide. Um, could the criminalization be a part of this? What are the reasons for this? Yes, because when you criminalize, uh, you, you, you don't give a chance to people to have access to services. You don't people, uh, they go underground, they hide themselves. We know that, uh, for example, in most of the countries, uh, this, uh, particularly in our continent in Africa, uh, most of these laws have uh, come from colonizers. Uh, the British, the French, the Portuguese, even apartheid uh, South Africa. These laws were uh, not uh, from uh, Africa and have no place in uh, modern independent uh, Africa. And uh, we are just pushing our own people uh, out of uh, um, health services. Since you've brought it to Africa, could you please paint a picture um, of uh, criminalization or decriminalization um, of uh, LGBTI communities in Africa? How many countries have uh, decriminalized it and how many um, is it still against the law? I think in globally in the uh, today in the world we have uh, 70 uh, I said 70 countries uh, 70 countries in the world uh, that have uh, criminalized homosexuality it is uh, now time uh, for uh, this uh, Entries punitive laws to go. If you take Africa, I think you have around 25 countries who still have those um, uh, homophobic laws. And uh, f- for us, we are working, we are trying to really make sure that uh, we provide all the information in the case, for example, UNAIDS is a friend of the court in Malawi and East, uh, East African Court of Justice where we are requesting uh, the court to strike down laws against homosexuality. So we are trying to work uh, with uh, um, government and providing information, demonstrating that uh, probably it is not the best way to restore the dignity of our own people. Mm. Um, And when you meet in court, what are the reasons that are given to you? Yes, I think uh, for, for us, uh, the, the main reason uh, we are trying uh, to, to share is the uh, data, uh, demonstrating clearly that uh, um, uh, to people that uh, people who are living, uh, um, unfortunately, with HIV um, or uh, continuing to uh, hide and infect uh, other people, and uh, that uh, this infection will move from uh, a key population, those uh, uh, gay um, men, to general population because they are not living in isolation. So we know, for example, in the case of uh, uh, India, uh, the gay men are 10 times more infected than general population. This uh, judgment will help bring down, uh, in that case, uh, uh, certainly um, infection um, amongst the general population also because uh, they will not hide themselves and they will not uh, probably um, run away from uh, uh, treatment. And if they are tested and they have access to treatment, they will reduce the infection uh, because they will suppress the activity of the virus in their blood. Um, is there proof that um, decriminalization increases the use of condoms, um, which is the main method of blocking HIV from being passed from one person to the, to the next?
a, a decriminalization increasing the use of condom probably uh, uh, if uh, uh, people are uh, feeling that they will be uh, not uh, uh, certainly uh, push back and they will not have uh, um, activities which will uh, uh, not give them um, opportunity to run away from information, uh, to have access to preventive measures. Maybe uh, in that sense, uh, uh, decriminalization can help. But what uh, really criminalization is bringing, uh, from my point of view, is uh, just the fact that uh, uh, we don't reach people. People are uh, uh, out of reach and they are hiding themselves, and that is uh, the problem and is making infection going up, and uh, we are moving from uh, a key population to general population. You know, we know many, yes. in many places, uh, mm-hmm. people, they are HIV positive, uh, they are um, um, yes. uh, gay, but they are married, they have children, and they continue to uh, also give infection because, uh, like you said, uh, they are criminalized or culturally they are not uh, accepted. Sure. Like, yeah. So that is a big point. Sure. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank well, you very much. All right. Michelle Sidibe is the United Nations Program Executive Director on HIV and AIDS, joining us from France there. Swiss chocolate wouldn't be Swiss chocolate without African cocoa. <laughs> you know, it's funny when you think about it that way because you realize just how important Africa is to the global economy. And as long as we are deemed to be inferior by the community out there, nothing's ever going to change. I believe it was one of the uh, ancient Greek philosophers who said that when we teach, we'll learn twice. Hello, Africa. Welcome to 1000 African Voices on Channel Africa. 1000 African Voices every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. with repeats on Sundays between 10 and 11 as well as on Monday morning between 3 and 4 Central African Time. 1,000 African Voices with me, Awurengwi C on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective. Your time is 19.30 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest. Here's Onelin Zinzi with you in your headlines. A Yemen government delegation gives Houthi rebels 24 hours to get to the Swiss city of Geneva for peace talks. The UN envoy for Libya warns that the Islamic State extremist group is expanding its operation in Libya and 14 people have died of cholera with almost 400 hospitalized in the past week in Nigeria's northeastern city of Maiduguri. Channel African News, I'm Onelensinzi.
thank you very much, Onele. Remember that you can be a part of the conversation by tweeting us on Channel Africa 1. Now, earlier this year, the South African Department of Higher Education and Training revoked the designated subjects list from the requirements for the achievement of a National Senior Certificate for high school learners. The National Senior Certificate entry to Bachelor Degree Studies. In order to qualify for Bachelor Degree Study, learners traditionally had to obtain their NSC with a minimum of 50% achievement rating in four designated subjects. Although the scrapping of the list of these subjects is a significant move, it also has some major implications. To unpack them, we're now joined on the line by Chief Executive Officer of the country's Independent Examination Board, Anne Oberhauser. Hello and thank you very much for joining us, Anne. It's my pleasure. Thank you, and good evening to you and your listeners. Mm, good evening. Now, um, and uh, what prompted the government to make this move? Um, well, essentially, I think it's a move that has been made by the University of South Africa. Um, and, uh, well, one doesn't know exactly what prompted them to do it, but I suspect there's a range of reasons. Um, when the new National Senior Certificate came into being in 2008, uh, the universities introduced this designated list with the understanding that these would be the subjects that best prepare learners for university study. Uh, so it's tended to be the subjects of mathematics, physical science, um, uh, your languages, history, geography, your traditional academic subjects. Um, but I think over the years that there hasn't been any significant research to show that these designated lists and performance in these subjects actually achieves the, 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 the ends that the, the universities originally thought they would be. Um, and so they thought that rather than try and narrow the list, uh, they would leave it open completely. What about the fact that uh, perhaps a huge number of high school learners would drop mathematics and pick maths um, literacy? Could that have had an, um, an impact on it, maybe them not getting to university? No, not at all. Um, the mathematic, mathematics and mathematical literacy were both designated subjects. Uh-huh. Um, so you could get into university with mathematical literacy, but obviously if you were wanting to study engineering or science, or some of our uh, mathematics rather than mathematical literacy. So, so you would, your your access, although you would qualify for entry to university, the the degrees that you would be able to offer were much more limited. Uh, in that, they um, uh, uh, you know a lot of your higher status degrees require mathematics for mm. entry. Mm. Um, will we, because of this, now see a larger number of uh, students making it to university? Um, it's it's quite interesting that um, it does increase the the, the percentage of, of students with with um, bachelor degree entry. Within the IEB, it increases our percentage for university entrance by about two percent. And if I'm if I'm not mistaken, the figures I've seen from the from the Department of Basic Education is that it would increase their um, bachelor degree entry by about four percent. So it's not a substantial percentage. However, that's quite a lot. I mean, if you're looking at six or seven hundred thousand students writing the DBE, four percent is is quite a number of students. 
Um, so, so it does increase it, but not as much as one might have thought. Uh, so in your view, is this a good move or not? Well, I mean, I think there's two sides to the coin. Uh, I think it is a good move in insofar as it gives status and recognition to subjects that under the traditional academic list of de- designated subjects would be ignored. Um, important subjects like design, uh, which which is a far broader um, subject than than any of the of the designated subjects that we've seen. It incorporates a whole range of skills um, and 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 ways of seeing and thinking. Uh, computer applications technology was was not a designated subject, and yet in, in in the modern world, I don't think anybody will survive without having some kind of um, understanding of how computers work and various programs and so on. So it does broaden the skills and the scope and the talents that students uh, may have and, and, and consider them for university entry. Um, on the negative side is that when, when people are faced with too much choice, uh, sometimes the choices they make are not informed. And so they, they might choose a combination of subjects that they think sound nice and that, that they might be they might think are easy and so mm. get through them quickly and pass well. Mm. But in fact when you put the whole lot together they don't actually form a coherent um, package that prepares the learner adequately for for, for study post school in right. any one or other particular field. Um, so so from that side of things what it does do is place an enormous amount of um, emphasis on proper career guidance, um, uh, study guidance for, for students so that they choose the subjects that will suit them best and prepare them best for the world that they want to go into when they leave school. Yeah. Um, so, so that, you know, that is a real problem because, uh-huh. you know, when you're 15 or 16 you, or 14 or 15 when you make those subject choices, you don't necessarily know <laughs> what you want to do. True. And and and, uh, and that's where, where guidance counselling is, is incredibly important. All right. And thank you very much. That's a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Um, and Oberhauser there is Chief Executive Officer at the Independent Examination Board of South Africa. Now, the South African non-profit organization, the Sunflower Fund, has launched its annual Sunflower Day campaign, an awareness and fundraising initiative aimed at recruiting blood stem cell donors in order to give the hope of life to patients diagnosed with leukemia and other blood diseases. Comedian and TV presenter Nicholas Goliath, now an ambassador, is adding his voice to the cause aiding the fight against blood diseases. Common blood disorders include anemia, bleeding disorders such as hemophilia, blood clots and blood cancers such as leukemia and uh, myeloma. He joins us to talk further about this on the line. Hello and thank you very much for joining us, Nicholas. I'm so sorry, man. The line's a little bit bad. How are you, sir? I'm all right. Now, if you can just tell us about why you decided to be a part of this campaign. Man, the thing for me is that I, I never realized I hosted an event for them uh, for the Sunflower Fund. And while at the event, I got an explanation of how easy it is to become a donor. Um, because, you know, we've all got this perception. The minute we, we, we talk about stem cells, people assume that they can drill into your bones and they can take marrow out of your bones and it's going to be a painful thing that you're going to live with for the rest of your life. 
Whereas in honesty, it's as simple as donating blood. It's very easy. The platelets are removed from your blood, and and it's it's quick, it's easy, and you get the opportunity to save somebody's life. Mm. Um, and uh, how has it been going since you since you joined? Man, you know the the problem is there's so many so much ignorance around around blood transfusions and that type of thing. And um, it's 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 a work in progress. It has been growing and developing, um, but unfortunately, the majority of the database are still white South African donors. Whereas the problem comes in where your blood is is a little bit racist. Your blood only wants blood from somebody <laughs> who's like you, and it doesn't want somebody else. You know, so it it makes it very difficult for the for to find donors when we are dealing with people who are non-white non-white um, which makes it which makes it a little bit difficult and um, but like I say it has been growing and this is why we have events like this so that we can then you know push the, the narrative and get people talking about it and understanding exactly what happens uh, now tell us about the day what is sunflower day so sunflower day what they do is they sell the topes which is the tube of hope and um, that's something that's the tope that you can buy at your, your local supermarket and all of those funds go towards the funding of the the research and getting more donors onto the registry. Um, and across the country, they're going to have different events. If you go onto the Sunflower Fund website, you will be able to see all of the events that they've got going on through across the country. Some of them are on Sunflower Day, um, and some of them leading up to and following on from there. Um, but like I said, all of that information is up on the website. Mm. Um, as a comedian, um, as someone who is a practitioner in the entertainment space, do you think that entertainers play a big enough role in in such initiatives? Um, I, I see that the trend is trending. I don't think that we have been playing a big enough role. And that simply comes down to people just not understanding what it was all about and just the fear. You know, it's the fear of the unknown. Is that more and more people seem to be getting involved now, and I feel like as entertainers, we should definitely be talking about it more, and um, just to get the message across and just explain the importance of having yourself as somebody registered with him. All right, as the general public, what should we be doing? As the general public, first of all, you should be a blood donor. If if you are able and capable, you should be a blood donor um, at the bare minimum, and then it's as simple as just adding your name to the registry. And um, you've got like a one in one nine hundred thousand chance of being selected and um, to be somebody to be a donor eventually. So you know, there's also the low risk that you, it might ne- you might never get the phone call. But I feel like everybody, we all know or of somebody, a family member, a friend who has been, um, you know, hit down with these blood diseases, and there's just no cure. There's no there's no way to to help them out, and it's simply because we don't have enough names on the register. As you are involved with this initiative, how easy or difficult has it been to try and convert people and convince them to donate blood? Um, it's you know South Africa is a very interesting place. You know we all have our, our religious and cultural beliefs, and and most times those those religious and cultural beliefs don't allow us to be to be blood donors or you know there's there's the stigma around it. So it's been tough. It's been tough. And that's why the majority of the database is white, unfortunately. Um, and like I say, if we don't change that trend, we're going to keep seeing our friends, our family, suffering from blood diseases and getting no support.
Mm-hmm. Um, and so what uh, what should we do, do we do now? What are the basic requirements? Well, the basic requirements, if you are a blood donor already, then you all you need to do is register. If you're not a blood donor, then you need to get down to your nearest SANDS. Um, you can do the blood donation, and there's a, a tick box where you can be contacted by the Sunflower Fund. They will then contact you, test your blood, add it to the registry. Quick, easy. They pay all of the testing fees. You don't pay any fees. Um, which makes it fantastic and easy. All right, is Sunflower Day a big event or um, it's just a day where we observe this? Um, well, like I said, they do have a couple of events running leading up to Sunflower Day um, and then it is a big event. It's, it's celebrated across the country and it's just a big drive to, to create awareness and just let people know what happened, what the, the Sunflower Fund is, how they work and what it is they're doing to save lives. All right, cool. Thank you, man. Fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. All right. That's Nicholas Goliath, who is a South African comedian and TV presenter and ambassador of the Sunflower Fund's Sunflower Day campaign. Your time is 1944 Central African time. Remembering Mama Albertina Sisulu. We will say whatever we are expected to say by the people. And we are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the people. We are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the liberation of the oppressed people of this country. Hashtag Mama Sisulu Centenary. Channel Africa leading the Women's Month conversations. All right, Hussein Matabula is here. He has your economic news. What do you have in your bag for us? We've got uh, Somalia uh, getting into the oil industry. They're promising that within the next six years... uh there will be oil production coming out uh, from Somalia. Given that, you know, uh, the hostilities between uh, fighting uh, f- uh, factions within Somalia, there's peace there, and that will be possible. should be interesting. The uh, the fight might shift to a fight uh, for oil. Who knows? Most definitely. It's, uh, many economists have written about, you know, the yeah. curse of oil. You know, yeah. all, all African countries that have oil, th- there's some tension, there's some problems in governance, uh, problems with uh, rebels and militias, you know, trying to get a, a cake, mm. a piece of the cake in terms of the oil. Mm. Well, yeah. let's hope they get it right. Wasana Matabula has your economic news. Thanks, Pumelele. We go straight uh, to Somalia, where the country says it wants to produce Brent crude oil in the next six years. Somalia's Minister of Petroleum and Resources, Abdi Rashid Ahmed, says the federal government is working hard to establish a legal framework to get mining working again. Despite high security concerns, the, the country says it has a lot of mining potential. The minister says they have also finalized a number of legislations needed for mining investment. Somalia says it will start discussing and negotiating with international oil markets from next year. And uh, Kenya's High Court has suspended a 16% value-added tax on fuel that has driven up uh, pump prices and triggered a supplier strike that caused fuel shortages. The tax was part of a government bid to finance health, housing and other programs while narrowing a fiscal deficit to qualify for an extension, a standby credit facility, 
with the IMF. The tax was originally included in a law passed in 2013, but was postponed amid protests about its impact. South Africa's Communications Minister Nomvula Mukonyana seeks to review the cost of services provided by signal distributor Sentec to the public broadcaster, the SABC. She says Sentec is the second largest cost driver at the SABC. She has been speaking at the South African Public Broadcasting Policy Review Colloquium in Midrand, north of Johannesburg. Mukonyana says the financial problems at the SABC are deep-rooted. The big question is, shouldn't we say for public and community, Centex should be publicly funded so that the SABC's job is to make sure that there's content in those transmitters. Centex's job is universal service, making sure that each and every community, wherever they are, they've got a transmit, they've got a signal, and equally community broadcasters, so that you can deal with that matter, not instead of saying Centec must go and, and raise its revenue. Otherwise, the prices will, are going to be market-based, depending on the, the kind of cost that they experience. And scores of South African widows have uh, matched, uh, marched uh, to the country's revenue collector source offices to hand over a list of uh, grievances calling for a review in the tax laws. Dressed in black, the widows claim that uh, the South African Revenue Service is overtaxing their widows' pension fund. The March convener, Lulama Peteni. You are taxed on the salary that you are earning and also you are taxed on the widow's pension. At the end of the day, the two sources of income, SARS, combines them. And then that income, when it is combined, it puts you on another tax bracket, which results in a, a shortfall on the amounts that we have paid. This money, this widow's pension, should also be treated as maintenance because it is maintenance from the person who passed on. Britain says it will uh, trial a six-month visa system to let non-EU seasonal workers uh, to pick crops. This as Brexit leaves farmers facing a labor shortage. The two-year pilot program will allow 2,500 workers from outside of the European Union into Britain each year to help uh, fruit and vegetable growers after Brexit reduces the numbers of laborers they can recruit from the poorer European countries in Eastern Europe. The scheme starting next year will permit the temporary workers to stay up for six months. Financial indicators say the dollar 10.78, Botswana Pula 10.28, Zambian Kwacha, BRICS currencies. We've got the dollar trading at 4.15 Brazilian Real, 68.22 Russian Ruble, 71.55 Indian Rupee, 6.85 Chinese Yuan, and at 15. 4.2 South African Rand. Also trading at 77 pence to the British pound and 86 cents against the euro. Commodities now gold $1,204, platinum $788 per fine ounce, Brent crude oil $77.60 per barrel. And that's how it's looking right now. Thanks for signing Musibudi Makura has your sports news.
Good evening, sports fans. FIFA has extended its ban from all football activities on former Ghana Football Association president Kwesi Nyetaki by an additional 45 days. He was initially suspended on the 3rd of June for 90 days. The committee are carrying out a formal investigation into Nyetaki after he was filmed apparently accepting a cash gift. The extension of the ban will commence today. Now, he was filmed in an undercover investigation by a controversial Ghanaian journalist, Anas Aremewa Anas taking 65,000 US dollars from an undercover reporter pretending to be a businessman. Now back home, Bafana Bafana coach Stuart Baxter is pleased with the warm-up game afforded to his players by Amazulu on Wednesday. Now the national team took on Usutu in a 30-per-half match at the Princess Magogo Stadium where they ran out 2-0 winners thanks to goals by Bradley Hobler as well as Vincent Pule. The national team are in Durban this week preparing for their Africa Cup of Nations qualifier against Libya at the Moses Mabida Stadium on Saturday afternoon with kickoffs said for 3 p.m. Central African time. It was useful. There was some there was some disjointed stuff because they're all new to each other, these players, uh, but there was some very good stuff as well. So now it's up to us to build on that good stuff and, uh, and we thank Kevin and the boys for, for giving us the run out and, uh, and I think we needed it. Look, our best, our best football, we all, we all agree, our best football uh, is played when we do certain things. And those certain things, we have to do that more. And the ones that we don't like, we have to do that less. So that's what, that's what, that's what it is. And that's the challenge of international football, because you, you've got five days sometimes with players that don't know each other, they don't know their opponents. They've got to grasp a bit of a game plan and say, right, I, I can do that. Meanwhile, Uganda's national football team captain Dennis Onyango is confident that his team will beat Tanzania in the 2019 Africa Cup of Nations qualifier at home also on Saturday afternoon. The East African derby will be staged at the Nelson Mandela National Stadium in Kampala with kickoff set for 3 p.m. Central African time. The Uganda Cranes are leading Group L having registered a credible 1-0 victory against Cape Verde away last year. There are no easy games in, in, in football anymore. Uh, and if you look at Tanzania, it hasn't been performing as a team, but they've got good individuals who play in Europe, like uh, Samantha. Uh, they've got one player also in Baroka, I think. And they've got individuals, but it's going to be an East African derby. And uh, for us, we need we just need to win, because if we win our home games, we'll qualify, and we've been doing that lately with the national team, but through hard work. Meanwhile, the Premier Soccer League has announced a partnership with the South African Police Services joining forces through the multi-choice Disky Challenge Games where the police will come in their numbers to offer crime prevention services to the community. Now, the initiative will be officially launched this coming weekend when the MDC Games kickoff and staged for the first time at the Hammersdale Stadium in Bomalanga near Durban. The announcement was made by the PSL Chairman Dr. Ivan Koza and Police Minister Begikele at Empress Palace earlier today. And finally, in rugby news, Toyota Cheetahs captain Rudy Page is confident he sides um, in his size preparedness ahead of the Curry Cup match against the Xerox Golden Lions in Johannesburg on Saturday afternoon. Now, the Lions have won two or rather all of the um, games that they've played, which is two matches, and uh, they are currently second on the long table with the Cheetahs in sixth position. Page says playing away from home is always a big challenge. Obviously, we do trust each other as a team because we play together for a while. But um, 
Concerning this weekend's game, it's a different challenge. We're playing away from home. Um, it's another tough, tough game against the Lions side that's been playing finals for the past few years. So they obviously know how to win rugby games at Ellis Park. But these guys that we're playing with, our team, um, I think sometimes rugby is, I've said it before, it's a game of perceptions. So it's someone's perception. He's maybe been ranked number one or number two, but I've got full confidence in my team that they'll be hungry enough to go put in a, a good shift of 18 minutes of hard work. Bazaar Sports News at the summer. Stay tuned to Channel Africa for more news from an African perspective. This is Africa Digest. It is 17.55 Central African time right here on Africa Digest. Let's recap our top stories. The Burundi government has denied UN accusation of committing crimes against humanity over the past 18 months. Activities and events underway in South Africa to highlight the importance of the tourism sector. And with that, we'll wrap up Africa Digest for this hour. For myself, Spumele Lezondi producer Luanda Mahome, technical producer Wiseman Mangaile, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you for listening. Send your emails to info at channelafrica.co.za. On WhatsApp, we are on plus two seven seven six three hundred double three two seven. Tweet us on Channel Africa One. We leave you with a song. Good night. This is it. This is it. Yes, 
fell in my palms Ay, But I give thanks to my wife Messengers at my Zulu Yeah, my little brother Mzwa Kabe ngal po si tawudu Gobe na ning pita nan Nakfagi morali Nga piliva Ne tepat bulali Gonga na masalbam Abang nagegende gondima Kabe zamo gumketula Nga solang vikisita Bati jolo kina Mziba kuifa gonke si akriba Asada so so manja Kes bongo buti sabina Hallelujah Strange, I'm moving past my belly, but this time next year, you'll be my chance to win. I'm so 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 mad.